Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you love food and you love history, this Louisiana Eats has your name all over it. I've always thought that everything just tastes better when you know the story of the people who brought it to the table. On this week's show, we're going to learn about some of the habits and behaviors of the earliest inhabitants of Louisiana, along with the first explorers and settlers who came to this swampy place and claimed it for their own. First, we sit down with Philippe Halbert, a Yale PhD candidate who takes us from armoires to olive jars in his exploration of the Europeans' earliest days here. Then, Archaeologists Jim Bruseth and Tony Turner join us with the harrowing tale of the shipwrecked LaBelle and the watery secret she revealed about the demise of French explorer La Salle and his men. Finally, Christophe Pourny, furniture historian and conservator, gives us a lesson in how to select and use dining room antiques. We're traveling back in time to uncover the tales of what's been left behind on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Philippe Halbert. I'm a PhD candidate at Yale University in the Department of the History of Art. For over a decade, the historic New Orleans collection has brought together antiques experts, collectors, and aficionados for its annual Antiques Forum. Speakers delve into topics ranging from 19th century portraiture to embellished firearms, with an emphasis on Southern culture. Philippe Halbert's research centers on the material culture of the French Atlantic world. In his talk, entitled From Olive Jars to Armoires, Form and Function in Early Louisiana, Philippe explored New Orleans' history through its objects. Philippe joined us in our studio to talk about some of those objects and how they help paint a clearer picture of our past. So I, I love objects. I love history. I love early American history. And uh my personal soapbox is that I think this particular region, this state, this city has so much to teach this country about where it's come from, where it is now, where it's going, whether from a linguistic or religious or racial immigration perspective. I mean, there are so many incredible little stories and, and, and anecdotes and bigger pictures that kind of take place here on the Mississippi 300 years ago. Um, and it's a very American story. This kind of coming together of people from disparate places with different traditions and languages. Um, and I find that really compelling and really just amazing to think that this is still here after so many years of hurricanes and fires and floods and war and, and all number of challenges that might have made perhaps a less hardy community 
pack up and move. Um, this is a history that kind of serves to nuance our understanding of American history um, in a way that I find really exciting. I guess we should really start off with olive jars. Why did you begin with olive jars? So for me, I thought it was kind of a good way to start. The focus of my talk was on New Orleans and kind of the surrounding area. And the olive jar is a type of ceramic form that would have been the kind of thing that might have come and most likely did come with the very first people to come and settle New Orleans, the, the, the wider Gulf Coast South. So they were kind of a utilitarian, all-purpose container. It wasn't just olives in them then. No. So that's that's a story, and it's, it's a good one. It's a, it's a pretty convenient shorthand, but maybe olives, olive oil, wine. Um, the record also has things like spices, things like capers, chickpeas, honey, uh, salted fish. So a pretty kind of multi-purpose form in that respect for storage and for transportation of goods. And once they got here, they were utilized in other ways too. So right. So once they're kind of emptied of their contents, um, you could use them as cisterns for kind of filtering water. So the water from the Mississippi would be poured into these kinds of jars. And we have uh, period anecdotes that describe how the water is taken in buckets and filled into the jars, which are these large, again, kind of terracotta vessels. And the sediment would kind of filter down to the bottom. Um, and these would be found in courtyards. They'd be found kind of throughout what's now the French Quarter. Um, they could also be buried kind of partway in the ground, and uh, it would create a kind of cold storage. Well, I'm so glad that you led right into river water. You were able to find a quote where somebody described drinking it, and this was in the 1700s, and they described it as pure, delicious river water. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't imagine the last <laughs> time someone said that about the Mississippi River. Same, same for me. That's a quote from about 1750 by a French traveler. But there are a number of quotes like that where they describe the salubrity of the water and how it is clear and cool and refreshing and it tastes good. And it has certain qualities about it that at least for the women, it supposedly makes them able to bear many children. Um, <laughs> and so there is this one great quote from a, a refugee from Saint-Domingue, so from what's now Haiti. He comes to New Orleans in the late 18th century, and uh, I think he maybe exaggerates a little bit, but it's a really great account of his time in lower Louisiana on the Gulf Coast and how he sees grandmothers, mothers, and daughters often all pregnant at the same time because they've been drinking this water. So uh, it makes you wonder. I'm not so sure about that. But uh, that women who have never before been able to conceive somehow arrive in Louisiana and within the year are pregnant because they've drunk this water. But you had a really good time comparing plates and platters mm -hmm. that you found from one end of the quarter to the other, or at least bits and pieces. Tell us about some of your favorites findings. Sure. So I guess in terms of um, sites in the French Quarter that have been excavated, one of the very best is Madame John's Legacy, which is a colonial house on Dumaine Street between uh, Charters and Royal. It's owned by the Louisiana State Museum. And it's for me, it's the only colonial domestic site that you can go and visit today in the French Quarter. We have lots of pre-Civil War houses, um, but this is the only kind of pre-1800 house that you can go and see occupied from the 1720s all the way till the 1920s and 30s. Right. And so some of the objects that have come out of the ground at Madame John's are sherds from platters and plates, blue and white, polychrome, so multicolored, um, really beautiful objects that traveled from France to Louisiana over 200 years ago. 
along with pottery sherds made by indigenous people here in Louisiana and creamware from England. And so it's this kind of, it's like a Creole mix of different kinds of ceramics and ceramic types and forms that I think makes for a really kind of fun, compelling story where a real person lived here, real people lived here and used these objects and broke them and then discarded them in the trash. Um, 200 years ago. Well, you know, that is one of the things that you do that fascinates me the most. What is the process that you go through to figure out a vessel's use from just a very few pieces? So I'm not an archaeologist, and I have the most profound respect for those people because uh, I've done it once or twice, and it is hard work. And so they're out there digging in these kinds of conditions that are not, they're not always very comfortable. So I have the luxury of looking at the things once they've been dug out of the ground and washed and cleaned. And so one of my favorite pieces from Madame John's are two pieces. One is shaped kind of like a little fish. This is a, a, a tin-glazed earthenware, so faience shirt, um, in the shape of a fish. And then another piece that goes with it, kind of like a little bit of a tail. And when you put those together, what it makes, and that's so an example of how we kind of deduce what the thing was, um, this is the top of a wall fountain. So this is kind of a flat-sided, bulbous kind of piece that gets tacked up onto the wall. And it's a it's filled with water. There's a little spigot. Um, this is all missing from the thing, from the, the sherds themselves. But they look just like the top of intact, extant fountains. Um, and related to food, this is the kind of thing you'd wash your hands with. There's a, a brass or a kind of a metal spigot that often came with these. And you'd have a basin so the water would go in. And you'd wash your hands before a meal. You might do this in your bedchamber as you're getting ready or dressed or whatever. And so it's kind of a comparable uh, process whereby we look at what we have and we compare it against extant objects that are kind of like parallels, basically like an antique parallel, if you will, to the little broken bit that we have. It must be so exciting when you figured that out. What, what a great discovery. I really didn't have any knowledge of wall fountains, but – that certainly solved the hand-washing problem, didn't it? Would they have been adjacent to the dining area as well? So one of my, my tools are probate inventories, and these are often very precise, and they list the kinds of objects that people had, and they list where they often were in the home. These notaries under the French and the Spanish regimes were often very meticulous. And so, A, yes, it's a fountain or part of a fountain, but where do we, what do we make of this object, having found this at Madame John's? Inventories from that site that I have don't mention wall fountains, but others do in New Orleans and other colonies and other parts of Louisiana and mention wall fountains in dining rooms, um, in bedchambers. Um, and then I have one rather intriguing inventory from the French island of Martinique um, from 1766 in which the deceased had a faience wall fountain affixed to the wall on his gallery, so of his house. So this kind of semi-enclosed outdoor area, which also contained two dining tables. So, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, a meal al fresco in colonial Louisiana was certainly within the realm of possibilities. Um, and your wall fountain would have been a part of that kind of genteel, refined, sophisticated dining experience. Um, because along with the fountain, you know, you also own dozens of plates and platters. And I'm always amazed at the amount of dining wares that people own um, here, among other places. The French have a an affinity for the arts of the table, and setting a fine table along with serving good food was part of that experience. Philippe 
Philippe Halbert, PhD candidate at Yale University in the Department of the History of Art. What is the Tunica treasure, and where exactly was it discovered? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the Tunica treasure, and where exactly was it found? In the summer of 1968, an Angola prison guard named Leonard Charrier discovered a secluded Tunica burial place, holding over 100 members of the Tunica tribe. Using a metal detector, he made the discovery on the east bank of the Mississippi River, about 15 miles northwest of St. Francisville. Even though he was untrained, Charrier studied 18th century maps and early colonial period documents to locate the site, something that had been a secret for 240 years. Included in what is now known as the greatest archaeological find in the lower Mississippi Valley were European glazed earthenware pieces, Rhine Valley stoneware, blue and white Dutch Delftware, along with other remnants of the French and Spanish settlers who traded with the Native Americans. Unfortunately, Charrier's investigation resulted in a haphazard mutilation of the Tunica site that continued until 1970. He eventually sold the pilfered items to the Peabody Museum in Essex, Massachusetts, the leading authority on Tunica Indian history. Thanks to the Native American Graves Protection and Reparation Act of 1990, the Tunica treasure was returned to the tribe. Professional conservators were brought in to survey the damage and estimated the cost of restoration to be over $2 million. Although far beyond the financial resources of the Tunica Biloxi tribe, they responded to the challenge. 
an environmentally correct storage facility was fabricated from a salvaged highway refrigerated trailer. And with the aid of private funding and donated equipment, a second highway trailer was converted into a highly sophisticated laboratory. A historic preservation grant from the National Park Service was used to bring a team of professional conservators to the reservation to teach two tribal members how to save the Tunica treasure. Today, the Tunica Biloxi Museum in Marksville, Louisiana, is home to the Tunica treasure, where it can be viewed by all. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Every archaeologist dreams of finding the proverbial needle in the haystack, unearthing clay pots from a civilization that no longer exists, or King Tut's tomb filled with gold and artifacts preserved like a snapshot of long ago. Few actually get to live that reality. Jim Bruseth is one of those few. To understand his story, we need to go back to the 17th century, 30 years before the founding of New Orleans. A French explorer by the name of Robert de La Salle set out to find the mouth of the Mississippi River and establish a colony there. Needless to say, he didn't succeed. La Salle's expedition was doomed, and his ship, the Labelle, ran aground and sank off the Texas coast in 1686. Three hundred years later, archaeologist Jim Bruseth had information that pointed to the sunken ship, but it was still considered something of a long shot to actually find the shipwreck. Thanks to technology and probably a little bit of luck, that's exactly what he did. Archaeologists have parted the sea with a coffer dam, made a dry hole in Matagorda Bay to recover a French exploration ship that has been stuck in the mud on the bottom for 310 years. In 1995, divers reached down into the mud off the coast of Texas and gripped the handles of a cannon. This proved to be just a hint of what lay on the bay's bottom below. There, in fact, was La Belle that for three centuries had laid hidden on the muddy bottom of Matagorda Bay. Jim joined us in the studio, along with Tony Turner, who assisted in the recovery of the shipwreck. Both are co-authors of the book, From a Watery Grave, The Discovery and Excavation of LaSalle's Shipwreck, La Belle, which pieces together the story of the ship and its final journey. LaSalle attempted the first effort to establish a colony at the mouth of the Mississippi River in, in 1684, and he missed it and landed in Texas, thinking he was at the mouth of the Mississippi River, but he was actually 400 miles away. Oh, my goodness. What a happen chance and a terrible mistake. Well, LaSalle had uh, sailed down the Mississippi River. He was the first European to do so in uh, 1682, and he placed a marker at the mouth of the Mississippi so he knew he could find it when he came back. But he came back a different way because Louis XIV decided to come through the Spanish Sea, which is what the Gulf of Mexico was called at that time. And they weren't familiar with the territory, and they missed 
the mouth of the Mississippi by a long shot. And in 1682, when La Salle discovered the mouth of the Mississippi River, he claimed all the land it drained for France, about a third of the United States. That later became the Louisiana Purchase. And his goal was to come back and to establish a colony a few years after that discovery at the mouth of the Mississippi River. So his effort was the first attempt to establish what later became the city of New Orleans. Tell us about the mislaid plans of La Salle. La Salle came with 300 colonists, and he had a number of what he called gentlemen. These were uh, richer uh, families, uh, mostly men, but a few families that came with him that, that were investors in his expedition. But he had a number of people with him who were, when he got over here, were he found to be largely what he called boys with no skills. And the reason for that is that people in France at the time that were doing well didn't want to come to the New World. They, were, they, they heard stories about the bad things that could happen to you in the New World, and they were fine in France. So LaSalle had to employ men to go hire colonists, and they got paid by how many colonists they hired. And in the process of doing it, they got ill-fitted colonists and a number of boys that were hired to be colonists, but really were young boys that knew very little and how to survive in the wilderness of North America. Where were they collecting these potential colonists from exactly? It would be uh, La Rochelle, France, and Rochefort, France. And these are two seaport towns on the southwestern coast of France. And they were rounding up beggars from the church steps? Yeah, things were so tough <laughs> that they had to go get beggars off the church steps. And uh, one account says that some of the uh, colonists were tricked onto getting onto the ship, probably drugged in some way, woke up on, on one of the ships heading to the New World. Tell us the story of what happened to LaBelle. Well, LaBelle was one of four ships that came across the ocean with uh, LaSalle and his 300 colonists. It was a small ship, about 54 feet long, about 17 feet wide. And uh, it was given to LaSalle uh, by King Louis XIV, a shallow draft vessel to be used to explore once he got to the New World. And uh, he came across the uh, Atlantic Ocean landed in Texas around Matagorda Bay, about midway between Houston and Corpus Christi, thinking he was at the mouth of the Mississippi River. So mistaken was he, and so misunderstanding the internal geography of North America at the time. So LaSalle landed, and uh, one of his ships was wrecked off the coast trying to come into Matagorda Bay. Another ship, uh, Le Jolie, had orders to sail back to France after it offloaded supplies and colonists. And so pretty quickly, he was down to one vessel, La Belle, as his lifeline. And so in 1685, he loaded everything he had left in uh, to La Belle for a colony on the Mississippi River mouth, anchored it in Matagorda Bay. He decided he would go overland, find the Mississippi River, come back, get his ship, LaBelle, sail it around, and establish his colony on the Mississippi. LaSalle had no idea the Mississippi River was 400 miles away. He told people on board LaBelle, stay put, don't move, I'll be gone 10 days, I'll come and get you. Well, the people on board the ship waiting the 10 days turned into 20 days and, and then a month, and they began to run low on water, and they sent some of their sailors ashore to get some water, and the sailors never came back. The Karankawa Indians were hostile to the French colonists and probably murdered them. So the, the people that La Salle's uh, on board the ship, the, the men that had gone ashore to get water, they were probably killed by the Karankawa Indians. They never came back. And the diary of the expedition tells us that people on board La Belle, first uh, they had some pigs, and they couldn't f 
give the pigs water. They were running out of water. So they killed the pigs and ate the pigs, probably had a nice meal from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then uh, things got so desperate that people began to die of thirst on board La Belle. The captain of the ship, according to the diary, uh, he controlled everything, and so he took control of the brandy and the wine. And we're told that there wasn't a day that went by that the captain wasn't drunk. Mm. Things get so bad in, in early February 1686, the captain decides to violate LaSalle's order, sail around to the other end of Matagorda Bay to get help where there's a f- temporary French colony there. And as he does that, a strong cold front comes through. They lose control of La Belle, and it wrecks on the southern shore of Matagorda Bay. Now, how long at this point has LaSalle been gone? LaSalle was gone over two months trying to find his river, desperately searching, having no idea that the river was miles and miles away. And when he finally came back, he heard that his last ship, La Belle, was lost. And he realized his efforts to establish a colony were, were failing terribly. So LaSalle decided he needed to get help at that point for his colony. He couldn't go down into Mexico because the Spanish occupied Mexico, and, and he would be captured as a, as a traitor, as, a, as a, somebody, an enemy that should not be there. So in, in 1687, it took him a period of time to figure out what to do. He decided he would get help, and he would walk to Canada Oh, a little walk to Canada. That's If you were French in, in this part of the New World in the late 17th century, the only other French people were up in Canada, and that's what you had to do. So we took off with 17 men uh, headed towards Canada, and on the way in East Texas, an argument broke out about who was getting how much food. Some of LaSalle's men felt like they weren't getting their share of the food, and so they hatched a plot to kill LaSalle, and they ambushed him and shot him in the head, and threw his body in, in, in the woods, stole his clothing, and that ended the, the great explorer LaSalle's effort to establish a colony in the New World. So La Belle is on the floor of Matagorda Bay. It's just lying there for all those years. How long did the hunt for the ship go on? Well, I, I worked for the Texas Historical Commission, uh, an arm of uh, Texas government, and in the late 1970s, actually before I started working there, efforts were made to try and find that, that ship. We're, we're so lucky that when Spain heard about this French attempt to establish a colony in their part of the New World, they had a manhunt looking for La Salle. They had 11 expeditions by land and by sea trying to find the French colony. Uh, they eventually succeeded finding his temporary colony on Matagorda Bay, but after the Caranco Indians had killed everybody. But they also found in Matagorda Bay the remains of Labelle sticking out of the water, and they made a map. And on that map, they show Matagorda Bay, and then they show Labelle, its location, and they label it Navio Quebrado, Broken Ship. But they don't disturb it? They, they try to get what they can, but the majority of the ship is below water, ah. including the cargo. So they, they can only take some deck cannons, but nothing more, or very little more. And so uh, on the basis of that map, when I was working at the Texas Historical Commission, we said, we need to go out and find that ship. We have a pretty good idea where it is. And we did that in, in, in 1978. Uh, people before me, they didn't find it. And we did that again. We started again to look for it in 1995, and we found it. Oh, my goodness. What was that day like? Oh, it was absolutely amazing. We um, had done a, what's called a magnetometer survey where you drag a, like a super-sensitive metal detector behind your boat in a zigzag fashion to find iron. Every shipwreck has iron on it. 
And then on the basis of that, we looked at the targets, we prioritized them. And on the first dive, checking one of the targets, the divers went down and, and they could feel into the mud. Everything above the water or the mud line in the water had deteriorated, but they could feel down in there and they could feel the lifting handles of a cannon. <gasps> and a cannon means you got an old shipwreck. And so we were so excited. And it took us a few days to uh, free the cannon up. It was what we call concreted to the wreck. And we brought it up. It, it, it had French writing on it. Oh, my goodness. It had the insignia of Le Comte de Vermandois. And we did some more research on him. And he was Admiral of France from 1669 to 1683. And La Salle sailed in 1684. That was the confirmation that we had, in fact, found La Belle. After 300 years underwater, the 17th century ship was finally found. What came next was a decades-long process of excavating, recovering, and conserving La Belle's hull, along with over a million artifacts. We'll learn all about it when Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. We've been talking with Dr. Jim Bruseth and Tony Turner about the 17th century French explorer Robert de La Salle and his failed attempt to establish what's now New Orleans. When we left off, Dr. Bruseth was telling us about the 1995 discovery of La Salle's ship, the La Belle, 300 years after it was shipwrecked. This major find off the coast of Texas was only the beginning of the recovery and preservation process. What's the next part of recovery? So you know you've got it, but you don't know what's down there. So what happens next? Well, in a, in a shipwreck excavation like that, you really don't know. We brought up this beautiful bronze cannon that also had the royal crest of King Louis Fourteenth on it. And uh, we, we knew that it was a miracle that La Belle was still there. 
uh, probably a thousand miles from the intercoastal waterway canal where dredging's been taking place for years, 50 years probably. Yeah. And then oil exploration had occurred throughout Matagorda Bay and they had missed La Belle. So we knew the, the miracle of its preservation wasn't going to last forever and so we needed to excavate it. But the problem was it was in shallow water but zero visibility. So when you dive in, in Matagorda Bay, you see nothing, everything's by feel. And we knew to recover a wreck that could be this historically important, it'd be very difficult to do with what we call a dark water excavation. So we thought about it quite a bit and decided we would do something that had never been done in this hemisphere before. We'd build what's called a steel coffer dam around it, a steel structure around it, and pump the water out. And when we decided to do that, then we realized, oh boy, we need a buck a load of money because it's going to be very, very expensive. Yes, indeed. So we had to approach our Texas state government, and we were successful in getting $1.7 million reallocated from the Department of Criminal Justice to the Texas Historical Commission, my agency, and then private funders stepped in and, and gave us money. And so about a year after its discovery, actually in September of, of 1996, we started the excavation. Oh, gosh, and how long did that take? And that took about seven months. And in that seven months, we found the bottom third of LaBelle, still preserved with the cargo loaded in in barrels and boxes as LaSalle had loaded it. Uh, and we're so lucky that uh, but LaBelle wrecked in a first storm. A second storm came and drove the hull down into the mud. The mud sealed the bottom third of the cargo and created an anaerobic environment. So in that bottom third of the hull, we found 1.8 million artifacts that represent basically what an explorer to the New World needed to build a colony in the New World. The only place in the world those objects have been found, including a number of um, cooking pots and food remains for what the colonists were going to eat and prepare in the New World. There was lots of evidence of culinary preparation that was all ready to go. From that journal of the expedition, we know that they really valued uh, turtle. They'd make turtle soup. Uh, some of the turtles would have eggs in them. They'd use the eggs to make a sauce. They talked about how good the sauce was. Uh, they also, where they were living on the coast of Texas, there were huge bison herds that would come in there. And uh, for a while, it took them, they had difficulty trying to figure out how to kill the bison. Fortunately, LaSalle had with them a Shawnee Indian that he had been given by a group up in the, the upper Midwest and the Great Lakes area as, as a slave. His name was Nika, and LaSalle had befriended Nika, and they became great friends. And Nika knew how to kill a buffalo. And so with Nika's help, they were able to kill the buffalo and butcher them. And, and they said that the buffalo became their daily bread. They would eat the buffalo meat. They could cure the buffalo meat. And, and they said it was good as any of the meat, maybe better than the cows they had back in France. And... Tony, I understand that you still would really like a brass colander to come home with you. The one we have in the exhibit at the museum is absolutely gorgeous, and it was this in the center of a nested collection of kettles, which are so gorgeous. They're brass. They, could, they were polished up, and they, they look like gold, gleaming in that case. And I would love to have those utensils in my kitchen today. <laughs> there was also a candelabra. There was a beautiful brass ladle. Um, pewter dishes and pewter chargers uh, inscribed with LG, which is probably the property of Sieur Le Gros, who um, was bitten by a rattlesnake and died. But these were elegant, elegant pieces of cookware, 
dinnerware and we had forks and knives and all sorts of beautiful things. And as Jim said earlier, they were going to carry the traditions of France with them into the new world. And a lot of those survived. And they're beautiful. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. They prefer to pack things in barrels. Barrels were really the uh, container of choice on a ship. You, you could roll the barrel to get it to the, the ship, and you could pack it down there. And then you could actually pack them in different ways where they would interlock. So when the ship was at sea and the sea was rough, the cargo didn't start rolling around down in the bottom hold of the ship. So I would say probably of the containers we found, uh, 90% were barrels of different sizes, and then the other 10% were boxes. And I imagine that they held up fairly well. And Oh, when we were uh, excavating in that bottom third of the ship, the barrels were completely intact. And so my, my job directing that excavation was to oversee what we would excavate each day. It was absolutely amazing. We would, we would find a barrel and we would take it out and we'd open it up and every day we'd see something brand new to us for what LaSalle thought he needed for his colony. I remember one day I opened up a, a barrel and it was filled with axe heads. Uh, probably 300 axe heads in there, all packed in tightly. Didn't find the axe handles. He could make that the New World, but he couldn't make the axe heads. We brought lots and lots of axe heads with him to be able to use to cut down trees and to build his New World colony. So you, you actually found some human remains. We did, and, and oftentimes, since I'm at the museum almost weekly uh, talking to the public about it, um, they always say, well, what was the most interesting thing that you found on the ship? And when you find artifacts that were left by people, that's very interesting because they held them, they made them, they used them. But when you find a person, it's a whole different thing. And when we found that skeleton of that poor man who probably died of thirst in the bow of the ship, lying on a bit of rope that probably was his habitation site on the ship, it, it really took our breath away. And two-thirds of his brain was still intact. I mean, we had so much of that man and so much evidence of his life and the end of his life and what it was like. It, it was a very moving experience for us. Tell us about him. He was, um, we think we know his name, interestingly enough. There was a pewter porringer next to him that had the initial C and the last name Berange. So we think that's his name. Um, he was about five foot four. He'd had a very rough life. He had a very bad back injury, probably walked with a painful limp had terrible dentition, as most people in that era did. He'd lost a lot of his teeth. He'd been in a fight. He'd had a broken uh, jawbone, broken nose, and blunt trauma to his head. But they'd all healed over. This was not related to the trauma of the ship sinking. So we tried to find his relatives in France to see if anybody had that name. We also tried to do um, DNA analysis on him. But the DNA analysis revealed there was a lot of marine organisms in the body as well. And so mm -hmm. we couldn't get a complete sequence the first time we tried it. But 20 years later, we we're having more success with that. So we're redoing the DNA analysis, and, we're, and we've been able to sequence his DNA. And so we're in the process of continuing that. And uh, I think in the next year or two, we'll be looking for his uh, relatives that hopefully live today in France and can link them back up to his story and his remains. How incredibly exciting. What happens to the man? Has he remained in some sort of a research capacity, or has he been interred in some way? We offered to send Monsieur Berlange back to France. We talked to the French authorities, who were so wonderful to work with. It was a great international team effort. And we said, we'll send him home. And they said, you know, he wanted to come to the New World. 
He wanted to be a part of this expedition, and we think he should stay there. So we have at, in Austin the Texas State Cemetery for dignitaries, officials, state officials, and so forth, and he's buried there That's so in charming. a beautiful tomb. And the French ambassador came with a team from France. We gave him a beautiful f funeral with period music. And he's got this wonderful monolith with half of it written in English, half of it written in French. And he's resting there in Texas with us. And we're happy to have him there. For people who are interested in learning more about the story or even making the trip over to see LaBelle, how do we find it? LaBelle is currently displayed at the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin, Texas. So everybody's invited to come to Austin, visit our State History Museum, see the remains of the ship and the artifacts, learn more about all aspects of the uh, excavation and the recovery. And then also in southern Texas, there are six museums that display different or LaBelle artifacts from the excavation, and that's called the LaSalle Odyssey. So you can travel to South Texas and learn even more about LaSalle's effort to establish a colony in Texas. Jim Bruseth and Tony Turner, co-authors of From a Watery Grave, The Discovery and Excavation of LaSalle's Shipwreck, La Belle. For Christophe Pourny, preserving antique furniture is much more than a craft. It's a calling. Learning antique restoration at an early age, Christophe has become a revered furniture historian and conservator over the past 25 years. He stopped by our Louisiana Eats studios to share his book, The Furniture Bible, and evangelize the history and gospel of dining room furniture. So I am Christoph Porny, and uh, I am an antique restorer, uh, antique conservation. I've always done that. So when people ask me, where did you learn, where, I didn't learn. I was born in an antique store in France. My parents were antique dealers. So it's in my gene. It's a passion. I try to get rid of it. I tried to get rid of it, you know, to shake it off, but I can't. It's impossible. It always catch me back, you know, so... Each piece really sort of tells its own story, doesn't it? Because it's unique. Everything is unique. And I think it's very important nowadays where everything is standard, normalized. Everything, everything is bought from, from big chains of furniture or as, as good as they are, you know. But everybody should have one piece that is unique, that, is, that you have at home and where you can look at it when you come back uh, at night from work and you're tired and tell you, I'm the only one right now that has this piece of furniture in the world. You have written sort of the ultimate do-it-yourself book about Thanks. caring Thanks. for antique mm -hmm. furniture, and it's called The Furniture Bible. Bible. I mean, well, what did it take to write a Bible, Christoph? Oh, you have to be inspired <laughs> <laughs> from above. <laughs> it's a beautiful book. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Actually, when I approached the uh, publisher, I wanted to do something a little more precise, and uh, she's the one that told me, no, 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 Christophe, you know, we, with the knowledge you have, 
you really have to go big and start you know to do something that is going to get you from the from the history of the piece from knowing your piece of furniture to how to buy it how to deal with it how to maintain it take care of before and after and the project got bigger and bigger and longer and longer and we ended up with a bible so what is your favorite style of table for dining the favorite style of dining table is and has to be a 19th century table. Why? Because this is about the 1850s that really the dining room and the dining experience we know nowadays really, really started to exist. Before, it was a little bit all over the place. People had small tables on the sides, people had uh, uh, rooms that were not dining rooms, the hall, the, the side rooms or whatever, the parlor initially was a dining room, used as a dining room. That's where it started. Parler is the, from the French, parler, mm -hmm. to speak. And when the kings and when the royalty, you know, starting not to want to have dinners in this big banquet hall, you know, in front of everybody, they retired to a small room on the side because they could parler, they could speak <laughs> a little more privately, and that became the parlor. Once the parlor, dining, living existed, the two rooms separated, they're like, okay, wait, we can do even better. One that is going to become the living room, the parlor, and one that is going to be just for dining. 19th century, a room is starting to be designed as a formal dining room, used only for that. And the style of furniture, of course, the table and the chairs, are going to be designed specially for dining. So a good Victorian dining table is the best thing you can have as a dining table. It's sturdy, it gets bigger with nice leaves, it has a mechanism that still can work, it has the right height, it's the right proportions. If you want a dinner, you better have a 19th century table or even later, but they are going to be copied on the same concept. Would you give us a little walk through the history of chair design? Yes. People have always needed to sit somewhere. Weirdly enough, people need to sleep and to eat, but beds have not always existed and dining tables neither. But there have always been seats. So through the evolution of uh, the chair, you really have almost the evolution of humanity and history for the past 2,000 years. For example, if we take three kings that followed each other, Louis XIV, Louis XV, Louis XVI, the one that got his head cut. So, that, <laughs> so it started with Louis XIV, which is a very powerful, absolute, regal monarch that liked things, of course, being a big ego guy, sturdy, ornated, uh, very, very massive. So we have a lot of gilt, a lot of scrolls, a lot of rich materials. The lines are very rich. Then, of course, uh, as always, a kind of a reaction after the death of Louis XIV. Oh, no, uh, enough with that. We want things lighter. We want things a little more refined. We want things that have a little more subtlety. So it follows also in the leg of the chair. The leg of the chair becomes the beautiful cabriole with this beautiful, you know, simple movement and elegant, you know, so that follows. And then after you have Louis XVI, another reaction, enough for the curves and a little more sturdiness, but very, very simple. This is the age of neoclassical. 
This is the moment where they rediscovered Pompeii, for example. So you have a taste for antique, uh, a taste for simple lines, a taste for like uh, light floral elements. And if you look at the chair, this is the moment where you get the straight fluted leg, uh, where you get straight decorations, stripes, enough of the curves and the, and the elegant lines. So you can really, really, really follow this way. And if you continue afterwards with Napoleon and Victorian age and whatever, you can continue the comparison. Christophe Pournay, author of The Furniture Bible. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.